Hey guys, this is Wolfie D from PG-13. Check out my podcast, Live and in Color with Wolfie D, every Monday at noon. We're talking Memphis. We're talking ECW, WCW, WWF, everywhere that I've been. We even have some great guests, some Hall of Famers on the show with us. Every Monday at noon, Live and in Color with Wolfie D. Welcome back once again. It's the King of All Wrestling Media, Gene Jackson, here with another episode of the Jackson Interaction Podcast. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Main Event Comedy, over on YouTube. And also, we have the audio version available through Stitcher and all the other different means of getting podcasts. So you can check that out through Spotify, all those different places. But you know all about that. So we're going to get right down to it. We're going to get going today. You guys know uh, that I have this odd fandom, fascination, whatever you want to call it, with uh, Herb Abrams Universal Wrestling Federation, uh, which has led me to uh, to have a Facebook group dedicated to that, which led me to have a 12-episode uh, podcast with uh, bro- with broadcast Bob Anderson where we discussed the UWF. Uh, he tapped out after 12 episodes, so I don't know that it'll ever come back or not. Uh, but I always like to, uh, to talk some UWF when I get the chance. And I noticed uh, a fellow on Facebook uh, was posting quite a bit about the UWF, and uh, he's, he's friends with Steve Ray, and apparently they've got some things cooking uh, as far as UWF goes. So... I just reached out to him and said, hey, man, why don't you come on the podcast? We'll talk some UWF. We'll talk about what you and Steve's got going on. And so uh, we're going to do that right now. So I want to welcome my guest at this time, Mr. Michael Kevin Lovett. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing super. Thank you, sir. It's an honor. Hey, glad to have you, man. And so uh, I guess before we get started, just for a little context, uh, Tell us a little bit about you and uh, your connection to professional wrestling and kind of how you got into it. Well, I broke into wrestling in 1999. I think I was 23 years old. And, you know, I'd, I'd been a fan all my life, and I was presented, you know, uh, at the age of 23 uh, with an opportunity to get involved with it. And uh, with a, uh, a local Tennessee group or, you know, mid-Southern group called Southern Extreme Wrestling, and that was run by uh, Sir Mo of the tag team Men on a Mission. And, uh, yeah, I got a little handful of training at the old Excalibur gym in Madison, Tennessee, and started working, you know, whatever matches I could, as green as I was, you know, as long as I could tolerate the potatoes they were laying on me and the potatoes <laughs> I was laying on them. But, uh, you know, long story short, I got married the first time, and she didn't like me being involved with it, so I walked away trying to be the family guy. But, uh, you know, the road led me back and, uh, you know, had another run in uh, TWR, Tennessee Wrestling Revolution, in 2005, a few matches in 2007. And uh, but, you know, after that, wrestling just dried up Um, in the 2000s. At at that point, at least in my circle, you know, Tennessee wasn't the hotbed for wrestling that it once was, you know, back in the days of, you know, the USWA and the CWA 
and, and all of that. And, you know, you didn't have, you just didn't have as much going on. So uh, after that, I got an opportunity to move into acting. And uh, of course, you know, that led back to wrestling. So here I am. <laughs> Man, it's wild you say that. I, uh, I got trained and got involved in wrestling in uh, Mississippi around uh, the end of 97. And same exact thing. I married my first wife. She hated nice. wrestling. Uh, you know, we would spend a week and a half to two weeks fighting about every booking that I took. And it got oh, to wow. be another week after, after it was done, it got to be, it just wasn't worth, you know, the trouble. And so I got out of the business for a while and that's when I started, uh, writing for websites and uh, eventually got into wrestling podcast and the very front end of it back in like 2007, I was, you know, blog talk radio, uh, back when it was just me and maybe four other people doing podcasts. Now everybody who's ever drew a breath is doing a podcast and that's cool. But uh, that's why I've kind of ducked in and out of it at different times. But uh, so yeah, we have a similar, uh, we have a similar background in that. I am fascinated though with the, uh, the acting. Uh, how's, how's that going for you? It's going good. We have some films out right now. Um, my film that I was in um, a soldier's secret that was uh, picked up by a larger studio. And um, it's going to be hitting that version of the film. Uh, the lonesome soldier is going to be hitting theaters November 3rd. So, um, you know, that's going to bring some attention my way, even though I'm not in that version of the film, you know, it's still going to bring some attention to the original and me and all of us that are in that. So, uh, and um, Enchantress is out there making rounds. You know, I got a role in that one. Um, and a few others, so yeah. So we'll dip into that for just a minute because I, I do find it kind of fascinating. You know, a lot of people uh, are fascinated by acting and, and people being involved in movies and television and things like that. Um, and people kind of romanticize, you know, what it would be like if they did it and how it would work. So what to you was the uh, the most surprising thing once you got involved with acting like, what to you was like, oh, this is nothing like I perceived it to be going in. Or was it exactly what you perceived it to be? You know, I, I had thought that there was going to be this long chain from the bottom to the top. But it, it, it seems like it's a really short chain. And like you could be a big star from one day to the next. And uh, it, it, it all just depends on, you know, how fate falls. So that was the main thing. You know, I, I thought it was this just this this long road at the top but it really doesn't look that way nice is it like wrestling where it's a lot about you know networking where you know kind of get your foot in the door on a project and then as you meet people and they meet you and they like you and they open doors is that is that kind of how it works i would assume absolutely uh from my experience it does feel like it's it's who you know and and you know the chemistry that you have with them and uh you know it's either there or it's not so so yeah i, I agree with that Nice. <clears throat> so we'll circle back around to wrestling because that's what most of the people, you know, that tune into this podcast is it's between wrestling and comedy because that's my two worlds. But uh, so I am, I don't usually like to say my age on here much, although people can kind of figure it out if they look in the background at my, my wrestling fandom and where it all is rooted in. Uh, but I'm, I'm 46 years old. So Herb Abrams UWF, you know, when it came around back in, you know, 1990, I was, you know, I was 12 years old, 13 years old. 
And I was a wrestling fan that if wrestling was on somewhere and I knew about it and had access to it, I was watching it. There was no good wrestling or bad wrestling or any of that. It was just, it's wrestling. I love it. I want to see it. And so, you know, I'm from down south. I live in Alabama now. grew up in Mississippi. And we didn't have access to the UWF at that time. I read about it in magazines. I, I was... Every magazine, wrestling magazine I could get my whole, hands on, you know, I could get a hold of, I would read them. And so I followed it through the magazines. Eventually, um, I was able to get a hold of a VHS of Beach Brawl. And so that's the first actual uh, UWF show I saw. And then eventually I got a hold of some of the other, you know, VHS tapes and kind of went into it backwards. You know, eventually years later, as I got into tape trading, I started seeing more of the TV shows. And as I got older and then involved in the business, my perspective on a lot of this changed. But before we dig into all that, tell me a little bit about where you picked up UWF and kind of what your take on it was at that time. You know, again, it's almost it's almost the same as your story. Um, I, uh, I came across it in the, you know, around 90, 91. And, um, you know, I'd grown up in the 80s and I had gotten so used to that, uh, that marvelous wrestling setup we had of having like three national level promotions between the WWF, the AWA and the NWA. And, you know, the AWA was fading away. And I wanted to, as a fan to get back to that marvelous setup of having, you know, all those options. And, uh, you know, I stumbled across the UWF and um, I think they were on ESPN at the time. And, uh, you know, there were some, it was, uh, you know, reasonably good production and uh, they had some faces I recognized and, you know, I enjoyed the product. It was, it was a nice alternative to, to the other options of wrestling on television. It was. And, you know, like I say, without even seeing any of it, as you're looking in the magazines and Bruno Sammartino's involved, Captain Lou Albano's involved, um, you know, Cactus Jack, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, B. Brian Blair, um, you know, people who were big names in the, you know, at that point, Cactus Jack hadn't been, but he'd been a big name in Independence. But all these other guys were big names in the WWF. Eventually, Andre the Giant makes an appearance. And you're like, you know, oh, right. my God. You know, they don't get literally and figuratively. It don't get any bigger than Andre the Giant. Like, this is real. This There's something going on here, you know. Um, so... When did you start to get to see more of it? Uh, was it kind of like me, like later on down the line after it was kind of already gone? Or did you get to see it while it was happening? Or As uh, the uh, videotapes became more available, you know, I got uh, I got some videotapes, you know, and um, access to it in, in, in other areas. And uh, but the main thing was the videotape, like we talked about. Right. Um. And, you know, I was a fan of, uh, because I was such a huge fan of WWF in that era, like, I was a fan of Craig DeGeorge. I was psyched when he came on board as an announcer, you know. Right, <laughs> I was, I was like, excited, hey. too. He, he, I had seen him on some speedboat racing, I think, on ESPN shortly before that. And then he showed up, uh, he showed up on the UWF. Because I really love those old Coliseum videos. And, I mean, I remember... I don't know why certain weird things like this stick out in my head, but I remember like one Christmas, I got the Jake the Snake Roberts Coliseum video for Christmas. And it was right. hosted by Craig DeGeorge and Johnny V. And I've probably watched that thing, I don't know how many times in, in my life, you know. So, uh, and I mean, let's face it, regardless of how you feel about the UWF or Herb Abrams as a person or whatever, we can all agree that he was not the greatest 
play-by-play guy in the world. I mean, it was probably a, a, the right move to move Craig to Georgia in there when they did and get and get Herb out from behind the microphone. Or, or did you enjoy him? I mean, he had a different style. You know, it, I think it's all in your personal taste, all in everybody's personal taste. Um, granted, he was over the edge and uh, a little bit hot on the microphone, I think. You know, at, at times hot meaning, you know, loud. Yeah. But uh, – but still, you know, I, I do think he had he had a spark, and, and and it was interesting. Still, you know, to an extent. Have you gotten the opportunity to read the book uh, "Tortured Ambition: The Story of Herb Abrams with UWF" that Jonathan Plombon put out? I have not. I have not. I've been meaning to. I highly recommend it. Uh, I watched it. I mean, I read it probably about this time last year, about the time me and Bob started up the podcast, and uh, man, he talked to. Just about anyone who is still alive that was accessible to talk to about the UWF, he interviewed them at length. Um, it's really, really insightful and really tells the story of pretty much the UWF from conception to to the end. And I think he was fair. Like, you know, he called out some of the silliness and some of the stuff that, you know, it's just there's no nice way to put some of it. But, you know, he didn't really rake him over the coals like a lot of people do, uh, right. you know, in retrospect going back, you know, so I thought, uh, I thought it was really well done and, uh, I always recommend it to people, like I say, whether they're a fan of it or not, it's, yeah. I mean, it is definitely a unique and interesting story, not just the story of UWF, but Herb Abrams, the guy, uh, is right. A, right. <laughs> a very interesting and unique story as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, I, w- I would like I say I would highly recommend it. Um, so, you know, what stands out as, you know, some of your favorite wrestlers from the UWF area, era, I should say. And, uh, you know, some of what, what's the, just the matches stand out to you? You know, I was uh, I was drawn to Wild Things Steve Ray in my teens, just his look and his charisma and all of that and anything he was in, I was just, I was just, you know, you know, drawn to. And then, you know, the, uh, the, uh, quote unquote shoot match with Steve Williams, you know, you know, comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, that one, not sure really why I still don't have the whole story of what went on there, but, uh, you know, that one definitely stands out. And then, uh, you know, all of that, I mean, every, every bit of it is just, it just drew me so strong. So I saw enough of it so sporadically that I didn't realize until, you know, I started getting the entire, you know, library of, of television and I've, I've started putting it on uh, main event comedy, our YouTube channel. Uh, we're in the process of putting all the episodes of the UWF Fury Hour up. We're up to 36 or seven. Uh, we'll probably have it finished out before the end of the year. Um, Although I was recently uh, contacted by YouTube, I had to take down Beach Brawl and Blackjack Brawl. I was told that a couple people own that, and, and I guess they don't own the TV because I haven't got any flack over that. But um, it wasn't until I started watching the TV consecutively, starting at episode one and watching it through, and then Jonathan you know, makes mention of it in the book. Um, at what point did you ever recognize, like, Jesus, they do not, there's never a clean finish in a main event. Like, that is the most non-finished DQ count-out-ridden shows that have ever aired. And I mean, like, 
I dare you to go through the first 20 episodes of the Fury Hour and find me a clean finish in a main event. Well, I, I got you. I agree with you on that. But uh, I don't know. Nitro could probably give him a run for the money there. I'm not sure about that. I mean, so to kind of dig into that, like, all right, I, I agree. I get that to some degree. But like Nitro, so you knew watching Nitro you know, all right, we're building towards a pay-per-view. Like, they want us to watch Nitro every week, but then it's ultimately, they want us to buy Bash of the Beach. They want us to buy Starcade, Halloween Hat. You know, until Beach until Beach Brawl came along, when you're rolling through the first few months of UWF, you know, it's like, well, where are we headed here? Like, is, what is this building to? Like, we're, we're not really... You know, we're not getting any finishes in the in the main events. We're not building towards an event. And at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, wrestling television primarily existed to promote house shows, you know, to promote buying tickets to house shows. But UWF wasn't running house shows. So it was a wrestling TV show, you know, that existed solely for the sake of a wrestling TV show. Do you think, in what you know about it, do you think um, – a lot of that was just the matter of, you know, Herb was an outsider. I mean, you've been in the business, so you kind of know how this goes. Like, Herb was an outsider. He's a guy who started his own company, so he'd never been in the business. He couldn't be like, you know, hey, man, I got all these years under my belt of booking this and that. Do you think it was just a matter of Herb didn't want to sit these guys down and be like, hey, man, I need this guy to win tonight, and I need you to lose tonight? Do you think that's why it was like that, or do you think that was just by design? He thought it was better to string things along and, you know, keep things open-ended. Uh, you know, looking back at it, it does look like uh, they're trying to keep the fans guessing and trying to uh... – you know, keep things sporadic. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't see that there was that intricate chain of command with a wrestling promotion like you have with, you know, the others like WCW, WWE, where, you know, Vince has, you know, all these people, you know, helping him, helping him run things. Right. And, uh, you know, UWF just looks like it was a handful of people putting that thing together. So that probably has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I would, I would think so. Um, you know, you mentioned something a, a couple of minutes ago about the weird shoot match with uh, Dr. Death and Steve Ray. And I would love to get Steve Ray on this podcast at some time to kind of talk some UWF. And I would just love to hear the story behind that match because there's a few different versions of it. Like there's, you know, people that claim that, you know, Steve Ray had – slept with Herb's wife and he had paid Dr. Death to rough him up in the match. And there's, there's all these different stories out there. And that's one of the things in the book that really wasn't cleared up as far as, you know, what was the, the reason behind that? And it was, it was so bizarre because I mean, you could tell things got off the rails a few times during the match, but in the end they shook hands and everything seemed to calm down at the end. So it was just really, right. really bizarre. You know, I, I don't pick up a vibe from him like like that that actually happened you know granted i wasn't there i was like 12 years old at the time so, <laughs> right. you know, i don't really know but you know I, I don't pick up that vibe from him like that actually went on like because he he doesn't seem to arbor any resent towards herb or, or any of them you know so so I, I don't i don't personally feel like that actually happened but again i wasn't there you know at 12 years old or 13 to, to make the call well, man, I'll tell you this, like, you know, at that time, you know, Dr. Death had the reputation for being one of the biggest, baddest dudes in the business, and he earned it. You know, he went to Japan right. and, you know, fought that style. 
And you got to give Steve Ray credit. If he did go into that match with any inkling that, you know, Dr. Death was upset or he had it in for him for any reason, he didn't back down. I mean, that match, like, right out of the gate, like, he's kicking Steve Williams right in the face. Like, and that's how it kind of clued me in right at the beginning. Like, something's off here. Because, I mean, I've seen a ton of Steve Ray matches. I've never seen him just front kick people <laughs> in right. the chest and face. And I mean, he went right after Steve Williams and, uh, I was impressed with that. I was like, well, man, if he knew something was going down, he was going to let it go down. Cause buddy, he, he held his own, you know? Right. Right. Absolutely. He's, uh, he's still a big guy. So you've done some acting with him, correct? Yes. Yes. We did the, the film, uh, the faith-based film, The Last Passage, by Timeless Dreams Productions and director Linda Lee. It's a faith-based film. I played the role of God. He played the role of the devil. And, uh, you know, we had a tremendous chemistry on film. And uh, it was just great, you know. He he, uh, he had all of us rolling and, you know, a charismatic guy. So, so yeah, that was a, it was a wonderful experience. I'll never forget it. He's a guy that, when you're <clears throat> watching UWF at the time, like, I always assume that, you know, whatever happened with UWF, if it, you know, if it fell by the wayside and, and you know, things played out kind of like they did, I always thought that Steve Ray was going to be a guy that would break out and end up in WCW or WWF or both. I'm really shocked that he didn't have a bigger wrestling career beyond that. Knowing him like you do, is that, is it, did he choose to kind of move away from the wrestling business more towards acting and other things or... Was there an injury or was, what was the reasoning that, you know, his career kind of went away? As I understand, he walked away to dedicate to being a father. And, uh, you know, that, that was the story that I got. But, uh, you know, you're right. He had tons of eyes on him and then he just vanished. So, uh, you know, that's, you know, as I understand it, he, he wanted to be a dad. So, so he chose that path. And that's commendable. But, um, you know, because, but I, mean, I definitely – as like, especially like around that time, as the cruiserweight division started being a thing in WCW, like, man, I really could have seen him breaking out in WCW in that division, um, you know, and possibly finding his way to the WWF through those, those means. But, um, you know, I know you've alluded to on Facebook here and there, and I don't know how much you can or want to talk about, but, you know, you've, you've talked about, you know, kind of having some things in the works as it relates to the UWF. And of course, you know, there was kind of this resurgence in interest in the UWF in the past couple of years when the dark side of the ring episode came out and there was a lot of people suddenly, you know, Googling Herb Abrams and it it brought a whole nother generation of people, um, got them out looking for UWF content and questions. And, and it was definitely a good time for Jonathan to put that book out. Uh, can you kind of tell us, you know, any hint of kind of what you guys have in mind or what you're working on or. Well, you know, we have, we have the film going on right now. So, you know, that's going to bring some more eyes to us. And uh, as far as anything else, you know, it's just kind of a law of the farm thing. You got to lay the seeds before you can enjoy the harvest. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm doing, you know, making appearances, getting the brand back out there and he's doing the same. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see where it goes. So is it, I mean, is that wide open that something that, you know, you guys or anyone could run a modern day UWF as, as the ownership of that tied up anywhere, or have you guys made moves towards, you know, trying to, you know, make a claim towards it? 
as I understand, there are moves going on, but uh, again, I'm I'm not that far on the inside uh, as far as like being with the other guys that are involved. But um, right. you know, we're, we're again, we're going to see where it goes. Before this uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode, you know, came up, and like I say, there was just kind of this resurgence and in, in, uh, interest in the UWF. There's a guy who was on Facebook that called himself Herb Abrams Jr. And he was, you know, talking about bringing back the UWF. And I think he even ran some, I think he actually ran some shows as UWF, I believe, if they were real. I don't know. It may have been, it may have been some kind of fantasy league thing or something that I wasn't aware of. I don't know. But I just kept seeing this stuff popping up, you know, Herb Abrams Jr. And he was talking about all these shows coming up and there was going to be another beach brawl and all that. Do you know anything about that? What that was? Right. I, I, I've seen it. I'm not sure who this guy is or if there's a, a legitimate, you know, connection there, but uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard about that guy. I've seen his stuff. He's got like, uh, he's got a guy called the real Steve Ray. And it's, it's a guy that's like really skinny and, you know, looks like he's about 12 years old, but I mean, it looks looks like it's a roasted Steve is, is what it looks like, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I've seen it, but yeah, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite sure he's not legitimately Herb Abrams Jr. by any stretch. Uh, I mean, but yeah, I assumed it was some kind of parody account or something. But I thought right, he was trying to do something. It may screw things up for other people who were trying to do things. So you know, who knows? But um, but uh, yeah, you know, we've got the. Uh, the Herb Abrams, we got the Herb Abrams UWF Universe group on Facebook. So if you're a fan of UWF, if you, you know, if you're curious about, you know, UWF, uh, we invite you to come join that group on Facebook. Uh, you know, we, we kind of was keeping it active while we were doing the podcast. And then when we stopped, uh, you know, it kind of died out for a while, but we're trying to get it, you know, going again. I've been posting up as, as we post the uh, new episodes of Fury Hour to, youtube i post about them on facebook and i would love for people you know to become more active in there you know share stories share memories clips whatever you got you know in there and uh you know like i say it's 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 just a really fun for a number of reasons um it's a fun promotion to go back and watch and it was just uh an interesting point in in time and you know it got some guys you know some opportunities i think you know it put you know, Paul Lornorf back on the map and, you know, Steve Williams and like I say, guys like, you know, Steve Ray and a lot of guys that, you know, we wouldn't know who they are if UWF hadn't existed and, you know, shine that spotlight on them. So I hope people That's join right. up. And uh, I love that belt hanging in the background back there, man. I, I was always a fan of the sports channel TV title. Yes, sir. Um, I want to get me one of those at some point. Uh, you remember, so, like, when they had the Blackjack Brawl, and UWF had kind of been, you know, in and out at the time, and, and then Blackjack Brawl comes up, and all of a sudden, almost almost every match on that card was for a title, and there were all these UWF titles that suddenly existed that you'd never really heard of in the past. Like, there was some kind of, like, odd ones on, <laughs> on there. I wonder what happened to all those titles, if the wrestlers that had them on the show ended up with them, or, or uh, what's become of them. You know, uh, let's see. One of the managers wound up with uh, with the actual belt that, that's behind me. You know, that, that's a replica there behind me. One of the managers, uh, blonde-haired guy, wore white. I can't think of his name for the life of me. But um, oh, Was it uh, Colonel Red? 
I, I think that's it. I think he's the one that wound up with the uh, the Sports Channel TV title. Um, the world championship just kind of disappeared, as I recall, and um, it just went away. And I've seen pictures of Steve with one of the tag belts, but I think uh, it might be Sunny Beach that has has possession of that one. But I, but I'm not sure. Well, that's cool because I know I know belt collecting is a, a very big big thing, and I'm yeah. sure some of those belt collectors and well, all the memorabilia collectors, a lot of them keep that stuff quiet because they don't want people coming after them, you know, making them offers. They, they don't want to refuse as you say, right. for people who have watched that, uh, WWE most wanted treasure show, you know, I mean, they've, they've tracked people down and offered some ungodly money. I would have to think that, uh, Oh gosh, who's the, who's the MM, MMA guy who was a manager in, uh, AEW recently. Um, Oh, I can't think of it. I can't think of his name, but he's got an absurd collection of old school wrestling belts. Like I forget which belt they went down. I think when they were trying to track down uh, the big gold belt, they went down to see if he had it and they ended up buying a couple of other belts from him. But like, he's just got, I mean, just tons and stuff from the old territory days. And I would have to think, cause he's down in Florida and has been, I have to think he's probably got at least one ring used UWF belt in that collection somewhere. Cause I mean, we're talking, he's got hundreds of them. So I, uh, Dan Lambert, that's the name I'm trying to think gotcha. of Dan, Dan Lambert. So I would assume he's probably got one. I may be wrong, but I would, I would like to think so anyway, but uh, right. I, I'd be more interested in the, in the more obscure belts with the UWF, like the MGM grand championship or, uh, you know, you know, the other belts. They had that Southern States belt. You know, when they started running those shows down in the Carolinas, you know, all of a sudden there was a green Southern States belt that was like the old style, like the national title in Georgia and like oh, the nice. belt they used to have in Memphis. And, uh, you know, Bob Orton and uh, Mr. Wonderful swapped it back and forth a couple of times, like around episode 41 or two of Fury Hour by then. Uh, like that was around the time that like all of a sudden, you know, so they go from running like the Penta Hotel in New York and they'd been running out in California. Well, all of a sudden they were running in the Carolinas and it it was all of a sudden like a Jim Crockett revival. Like you, you had a Southern States belt. You had Jimmy Valiant. You had Ivan Koloff and Vladimir Koloff and Pez Watley, uh, Helmut Hesler and all these people who had been doing independence around there. It, it suddenly had a really different feel to it all of a sudden. Uh, but that was an interesting belt. I would, I would love to see who ended up with that. But like I say, the only people I know that officially held it was like Orton and, and Paul Orndorff. So probably. Yeah, actually, there, there were, there were a slew of those belts that had, had a very short list of, of title holders. Oh yeah. Like I say, some of those belts I think were just, had just been handed out for that blackjack brawl. Cause I had never heard of them previous. And then, it, and of course they didn't do another show after, so you didn't hear of them since, but um, it was almost right. like a flash of the champion show. Like almost every match was for, I think every match may have been for a title, but it was like, there was a midgets right. title and a ladies title. And right. I mean, and that, there was that, that Jewish wrestler had like a Israeli championship, Israeli championship. I'm like, is UWF running shows in Israel? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think Herb may have, may have had some Jewish heritage, and that may have been where the, uh, the Israeli, you know, championship yeah. it came from. That that's probably what it was dedicated to. But uh, 
you know, that, that may have been the theme of that pay-per-view for every match to, uh, to be a championship match. But when you do that, when every match is a championship match, you know, then it, it, it's not, it's not the spectacle oh, that, yeah. uh, that it is when it's just, you know, three or four championship matches. And, you know, even Jim Crockett was kind of like that in the late eighties, they had a lot of championship belts and, uh, I mean, I love the look of them. I have love having them around, but when you have that many, it, it does tend to uh, diminish the value of them. Oh yeah, and they were redundant because you had a United States champion and a national champion, and a right. United States tag champion and national tag champ. Like that's that's the same thing. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> right. Well, I think they eventually retired the national when they brought the United States in. But you know, I, as you say, I do believe they were on television at the same time for at least for at least a while. Yeah, they overlapped a little bit, and and I think Cornette maybe somebody's explanation for that said that the reason they did that for a while was obviously they kind of all ended up there together because they had been separate territories, and then right. kind of bought them out. But then also you had, you know, on any given night, Crockett might have been running a show in the Carolinas, and then he might have had somebody over in the Central States area. Then he had a show running down in Florida. I mean, there could be three to four Crockett shows running on any given night, and he wanted to have two or three championship matches on each card. Right. So that's why they kept all those belts around, and eventually as you know, the territory started dropping off, they started dropping the, the title belts. So right, of course. It, uh, it all makes sense, but uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just happy that you know, there's been a renewed interest in it. Like I say, you can say what you want. You can pick, I mean, you definitely can pick apart the booking. There's there's all kinds of things you can critique about the show. But like you said, uh, in that era, there had been WWF, Jim Crockett Promotions, slash NWA, and the AWA. And for Herb Abrams, a guy from outside of the wrestling business, to just come out of nowhere and start a promotion, hit the ground running with a national television coverage on the sports channel and get guys like Paul Orndorff and Bruno and Andre and all these people we mentioned. That, I mean, like I said, that turned some heads. Like, Because there, there were startups, there was guys trying to start promotions all the time. And, of course, all of them were like, we're going we're gonna to take down Vince McMahon and we're going to own the world. But he was the first guy to like have some television coverage behind him, have some big names on his side that you were like, whew, wait a minute, you know, uh, this, this might be something, you know. And, you know, maybe I think in the end, that's probably, I mean, I think he kind of had to do that to do what his intentions were. But at the same time, you know, we got an old saying in the South, you know, you know, get too big for your britches. I think he started out too big. If he would have started small and maybe grew into that, but you know, when he had that pay per view, they hadn't built up a big enough audience in Florida to fill that building. Right. And so it got him in debt. It got you know people's you know perspective of them, you know, perception of them. I should say, you know, like oh, they ran that building. You know, they ran that building. Right. And I think it was. Uh, I think it was just you know being unknowledgeable of, of of the options there with when that when that arena. Uh, I think it was the MGM Grand that was that was so empty. Um, like for example, the SummerSlam here in Nashville, I can't think of when it was, but, uh, it was a half house, but you know, they, they closed off that, that part of the stadium and they didn't show that. And, you know, and the UWF could have done that, 
with that event instead of, uh, you know, just, just showing all those empty seats. So, yeah, I think it was just inexperience there. You know, and that's the thing. Like, if, if I think if Herb would have had some people who had his and the company's best interest at heart that knew, I mean, because guys like Steve Ray were so young in the business. I mean, what could Steve really know on that front? Right. But wrestling being as it is and the wrestler mentality being as it is, they just look at it as like, oh, here's a bunch of guy with a bunch of money that don't know any better. How can we drain him of every penny? Rather than being like, hey, let's help this guy succeed because in the long run, we all succeed. We all have a place to work. And in the end, we can make more money in the long haul if this company's successful. They just look at it as like, man, let's bleed this dude for everything we can get. And, uh, you know, if he'd have had more help from guys with the experience who knew you know, it could have maybe could have been a different story, but you know, we'll never yeah. know. But like I say, it's fun to go back and watch, and uh, I'm glad you know, you know, guys like you and Steve and different people are help you know, keeping the name out there, and uh, you know, have hope for you know making it something in the future. Absolutely, thank you. Well, hey man, uh, before we go, tell everybody, you know, like I say, uh, you, you've got all these projects going on, you're, you're acting and, you know, got UWF stuff. Tell people, you know, how they can uh, follow you on social media and keep up with what you got going on. Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, you just pop my name into Google, my full name, Michael Kevin Lovett, it's right there. So, uh, so yeah, you just Google that name, go to IMDB, you know, you can see my film career there. I have a YouTube channel, I have some of my film stuff there. Uh, check out Timeless Streams Productions. Check out di- director Linda Lee. Definitely check out the UWF and see what we've got going on. And, uh, hey, we're going to be coming at you. Awesome. Well, hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Thank you for doing the show. And uh, as you. things progress, you know, keep me in the loop. Be glad to have you back again and keep people updated on how things are going. Totally, totally. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, man. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Give Me Back My Pro Wrestling, the podcast that's based on the old school, but can still help you find the good stuff from today. Dangerous Dan Colley, the Professor Jimmy Street, and the Plastic Sheik Jared are the undisputed six-man tag team champions of the wrestling podcast world. From thought-provoking topics to superstar interviews to action figure expertise, this trio does it all, and all they ask is... Give me back my pro wrestling. Every other Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts.